God continues to be good to us here. He invites us here. He shows up here on Sunday mornings. He receives our worship. He receives our repentance. He also has been so good to us to show up and receive our worship and our study and our repentance together during the week as we gather small. And so for the last month, uh, we've been telling story after story of how we have received God's grace as smaller communities that meet in people's homes during the week. I'm going to ask Rob Roselle to come up and share with us a little bit of the grace that he and his family have received through uh, their soul care communities. Uh, Please listen. Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Rob, and uh, for the past month and a half, my wife Patty and I have, a month and a half, year and a half, Patty and I have had the joy of hosting a soul care group in our home. Uh, We currently host the Sunday afternoon group that meets in Melrose and is led by uh, Ryan and Lindsay. Um, For those who aren't familiar with soul care, our group follows a very similar format to most of the others. Uh, We spend a chunk of time usually discussing the sermon uh, as a full group of men and women, and then we break up separately into a group of men and a group of women. And that's where we share uh, in those separate groups a little more deeply from the heart as far as where our joys are, where our struggles are, and we have an opportunity to pray for each other and encourage each other. Um, So Kevin asked me to share a couple uh, thoughts about my experience with uh, being in soul care. And I think there are a few, uh, there's lots of blessings that we've gotten through it. There are a few that stand out. Um, The first one is really just having a place where we feel that we've been able to be known deeply by other people in the church and where we've been able to know others deeply. Um, It seems funny to say because I think of any church that Patty and I have been involved in, uh, we probably have experienced community more deeply in this church right from day one. Uh, We've been here about four years. Um, But I think even though we were connected into the church and really experiencing a wonderful church community, uh, there was a sense at which in those first couple years of being here, we were able to still keep the church at arm's distance when it came to matters of the soul and what was going on with us. You know, as you're passing in church, you can, if someone asks you how you're doing, and it's very easy to just say, oh, we're great, kids are great, everybody's doing great, we're good. Uh, But meanwhile, there might be things going on as far as struggles at work or struggles in your marriage or um, things you're wrestling with in your faith that just don't have an opportunity to come out. So I think for us, the biggest blessing of soul care has been having a group of 12 to 14 people who are totally invested in seeing us grow, where we can share what's going on in our hearts deeply and where they're sharing with us. Um, So that's been a huge blessing. Um, I think Probably the second thing would be uh, sort of insight and wisdom that we've gained from the group. Uh, just in the stage of life that Patty and I are in, we're uh, wrestling with questions like, how do we parent two boys well? Um, how do we remain unified in our marriage? How do we love our extended family? How do we exhibit Christ at work? Uh, and it's been such a joy to have 12 to 14 people running alongside us, um, helping us answer those questions and lending us their life experience and their knowledge of the scriptures. Uh, so that's been a huge joy. I think the final thing that stands out to me is just the joy of encouragement. And for me, particularly, that's happened in those groupings of us as men. Um, I know that when I share something with those men, that they're totally invested in seeing me grow and mature as a Christian. Um, So I know that they're there to encourage me, to love me, to challenge me when necessary, to rejoice with me, weep with me, all of those things. 
Uh, and that's been wonderful. And I think that shows up in some really tangible ways that if I share something on a Sunday, the likelihood is that Brett or Jeremy or Jonathan or Ryan or Matt or Juan is going to send an email or call me up during the week and ask, hey, how's it going with that thing you shared on Sunday? Uh, and that's such a joy. It's, it's very hard to remain stagnant in your faith when you have brothers who are walking with you in that way. Um, so that's a little bit about, I guess, my experience. I'd say that if you're kind of feeling that arm's distance that I described uh, in your own experience at the church, I definitely encourage you to just dive in. Uh, maybe a little uncomfortable at first, but you'll be blessed for it in terms of uh, getting involved in one of the soul care communities. Thanks. Appreciate that, Rob. And uh, if that is you, if you're experiencing that arm's length distance and you're interested in jumping in, please come talk to me. Uh, about how you can join a soul care community, and uh, we'd love to get you set up with that. Two other great joys uh, that are going on in our church family within the next coming uh, couple of weeks. I just want to mention that next weekend we have a women's retreat. Uh, Many of you have already signed up and registered for that. If for some reason you haven't and you're wondering how to, uh, check with Jesse Borsma over here uh, this morning, and she can get you set up with that. And then a couple of weeks later, uh, the 23rd and 24th of October, we have a men's retreat. Uh, And so if you're interested in jumping into the men's retreat, talk to your soul care leaders, uh, talk to me after church today, uh, find out details about the men's retreat, and uh, we're super excited uh, about these couple of events coming up and looking forward uh, to what God has for us then. Let's pray. Uh, I want to just thank God for uh, Rob and their group and what God has done there and all the soul care communities, and also ask the Lord to bless uh, these men's and women's retreats that are coming up. Father, we do just pause to remember how good you have been to us. You've called us here. You show up to receive our worship. You hear when we call your name. You respond in love to us, and we are so thankful. God, I thank you for the grace you have extended to us through these soul care communities. I thank you for the realness and the honesty that is happening. Lord, we recognize these as blessings from you, and we ask that you would continue to knit us together closely as a community, as a church. And we look forward to the ways that you are going to be doing that. Lord, we also want to just pray your blessing on the men's retreat and the women's retreat coming up. Pray that you would show up there in amazing ways. And that again, we would receive from you and that you would hear us as we call. Thank you for being a good dad to us. Thank you for loving us in the ways that we recognize love. As much as a mother loves her children, as much as a father loves his children. God, you love us that much and we thank you for that. In your name we pray, amen. Now is the time in our service when we open God's word and we hear it preached. So please lend your heart and your ear to God's word preached as Jeremiah comes and shares with us this morning. How do we know that our pastors aren't fakes? Have you ever asked yourself that question? When this pulpit is filled each week with men who get passionate about the Word of God, they preach to us from the Word of God, but how do we know that they're not just charlatans, salesmen, 
people who don't believe it from the core of who they are? How do we know that our pastors aren't fakes? It's a tough question. That's a question I've been asking this week as I think about Matt filling this pulpit, Brent, Justin. What does it mean for a pastor to stand and, and love and preach over his people? And how do we as people, as a community being shepherd, know that our pastors aren't fakes? This morning, we're going to continue in a series that we've been working through in 1 Thessalonians. And that's a beautiful series up. Even as I was sitting here looking at this picture, the idea of what's going on in Thessalonians is pictured beautifully here. The Thessalonians find them in a confusing place, find themselves in a confusing place. The Thessalonians in a rotary. Things that they didn't see coming. This young church that is just starting is now in a place that they didn't see coming, and they're discouraged. And so what we have in 1 Thessalonians is a letter written to this church to encourage them. And this morning, the particular issue that Paul is writing towards, the issue that he's seeking to encourage a discouraged church about, is you have good Take heart. Church at Thessalonica, take heart because your pastors aren't fakes. And as we study this together as Seven Mile pastor will emerge crystal clear. And we will be able to and be encouraged because I have been so overwhelmed in preparing this in the realization that we in fact do have good pastors who when we look at the marks as laid out by Paul of what makes a good pastor, they line up with the men who are shepherding us in this community. And so this morning, we like the Thessalonians should be encouraged. But I will also say this, when the word of God is applied by the spirit of God to the heart of believers, it is a double-edged sword. It both encourages and it convicts. It comforts and it challenges. And as we see the marks of what makes a good pastor, what we will also see as two things that as believers we are all called Thessalonians 1.6 Paul has already made reference to the fact that you are to imitate our faith. What you've seen in us, you're imitating. And this is actually a theme. He says it in 1 Corinthians 4. He says it in Philippians 3. He often, when Paul starts to write about his own character, what you've seen in me, he then follows it up with, so do likewise. Imitate what you've seen in me. And so this morning, in essence, what we are going to do is both be encouraged and challenged as we look at the marks of of a good pastor. So in this passage particularly, what we've got is Paul combating some accusations that have been brought against him. And in essence, the accusations are that he is Harold Hill. Now, who's familiar with the movie Music Man? This is a really old classic film. Okay, Music Man. For those of you who don't know Music Man, I'll tell you a little bit about it. There's this guy named Harold Hill. He's a fast talker. He blows into town. He's a traveling salesman promises this town that there is a marching band coming. And so he goes from house to house and he talks with people and he tells them just that what they want to hear. He tips his hat at the ladies and he gives them a little wink and he tells the guys just how musical and perfect they are. I think you have perfect pitch, my friend. You know, he's one of these guys that's always talking fast. He's asking them all that they love and say, get a nice uniform, going to get there. 
They're going to get their instruments and they're going to have a marching band and the city's going to have something to be proud of. But Harold Hill is a con artist. He does this from town to town to town. He talks fast. He tells them what they want to hear so that he can get their money. essence, people are beginning to believe that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were nothing more than the music man. Nothing more than someone who said some really nice things like, I promise you eternal life in Jesus. That sounds pretty good. But now, the pastors have been kind of rushed out of town by a crowd, and now people are dying. Now things are not going so well. Now the Thessalonians have entered a rotary and things are not so clear. And they're going, they They were fakes. What Paul is going to do is systematically dismantle these accusations through this passage. That's said, let's give it a look. We're going to start by just kind of looking through these first six verses. And the first we'll see the first mark of a good pastor. And I want in on all of the phrases dealing with declaration, word, speaking. The first is very heavy on this. So follow with me, 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 11. And just before I, before I read these verses, I like to remind people, the prophet Isaiah says this about the word of God, that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. What that means is everything we see in the physical world is going to wither and rot and die. But when we come to the Word of God, we're in touch with something far more eternal and powerful and life-giving than anything else. We'd be really wise to pay attention. Let's read these first six verses together. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know... We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness." Away from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. See, these first six verses are very heavy on word. The first mark that emerges very clearly from this text of what makes a good pastor is the proclamation of the gospel. The bold proclamation of the gospel. What you've got here is Paul saying that we came to you. And we boldly proclaim the gospel. In those first two verses, he said, even though we had just suffered shame in Philippi, we came and boldly proclaimed. In that, little, in that little sentence, there is so much power. And if we understand the context of what's going on here, we'll see that. In Acts 16, Paul, Silas, and Timothy came to Philippi. Philippi was just down the road from Thessalonica, about a three-day walk. And while in Philippi, they stood and they proclaimed the gospel. They came into the city, and as they did, as church planners, pastors, missionaries, they started telling people about Jesus. But the people got riled up, and this is what they did. They stripped them naked in the city square. They beat them with rods into an inch of their life. 
Then they put them in the inner sanctum of the prison with stocks around their legs. Okay? So here's, I mean, I want you to envision this. Paul, Silas, Timothy, they're laid up in the prison, stocks on their legs, bruised, battered, bleeding, laying on the cold cement floor. And it's a great story to go back and read. Acts 16, it's actually the miraculous deal where the, the gates swing open and they don't even the Philippian jailer in that night he takes them home, he bandages their wounds, and the next day the people ask them to leave. So they leave. And you know where they go next? Thessalonica in Acts 17, our passage. These same guys, get this imagery with me, they come limping into Thessal- Thessalonica. Black eye, lip, bandages fresh from a Philippian jailer put around their stock, the, where the stocks had run raw on their legs. And you know what they do? They stand and start proclaiming the very same name that just had them stripped and beaten in the last city. You know what Paul's saying? Does that sound like the con artist to you? Harold Hill doesn't do the stuff that gets him beat and then do it again. Doesn't do it. He's in it for himself. You have a good pastor who even if you want to beat it out of him, he will not stop proclaiming the gospel. That's, that's Paul's message. It is like Jeremiah in chapter 20 of his book. He writes, it is like a fire in my bones, and the word of God will consume me if I don't let it out. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are saying that the first clear mark of a good pastor is that the word of God is like a fire inside of them. And no matter what comes, no matter what beating they receive, they will continue to proclaim the gospel. And they don't just do it boldly, they do it faithfully. In verse 3, 5, and 6, you'll see very clearly, he says, it did not come from error or impurity. We weren't trying to deceive. And then further down, he says, it was not for flattery. It was not for greed. This is a faithful gospel. Boldly proclaimed, faithful to the text. We're not going to veer from what God has revealed is true. They are boldly and faithfully proclaiming the gospel. And at some level, I have to ask, why? Why? Why do they do it? If they're being beaten with rods and put in jail, why do they continue to proclaim the gospel? Verse 4 is the key. Right in the center of these six verses, you see it. We did not aim to please man, but to please God. If you look at the structure of this passage, verses 1 through 3 flow into that verse. Verse 5 and 6 flow out of it. The reason that a good pastor proclaims the gospel boldly and faithfully, because they have a fear of God. Far greater than any fear of man with any rod that he might bring, they have a fear of the living God. That is a high calling. And I just want to say this morning, first of all, Seven Mile Road, be encouraged. Week in and week out, we have men that fill this pulpit. We have men that are praying on their living room floors in the blue room, praying for you in such a way that they might proclaim the gospel faithfully out of fear of God and not for fear of man. We don't have hucksters filling this pulpit. We have people who love the word of God. It is a fire in them and they proclaim it faithfully and boldly. It is not politically correct to stand and proclaim that we are sinners 
in desperate, desperate, desperate need. Does that sound like flattery? To stand and proclaim that you cannot save yourself. That is not the words of a con artist. To proclaim over the people of God, you don't have what it takes. That is not flattery, that's truth. And we can be encouraged. This is the point where Matt, if he were preaching, would say, Do you feel it? Your back straightening, your lungs filling with air. I mean, that, that's this point. You have pastors that faithfully, boldly, with no concern for what the world will think or what the world will say, they will proclaim the gospel over you. Be grateful. Be encouraged. Simultaneously, the word of God cuts both ways. And this is a challenge. And this, is, this has been challenging me all week. I'm going to ask a hard question. When was the last time you boldly proclaimed the gospel of Jesus in the midst of your relationships, your friendships, and your workplace with the people that you know? Was it this week? This month? This year? Ever? I've been having to ask these hard questions of myself. I ask it of the pastors as well. Honestly, it's easier to stand in a pulpit and say these things than it is sometimes to to say it to your next door neighbor. And the truth is that this is a call for all of us. Paul says, imitate what you see in me. Do we, as the people of God, have the gospel of Jesus on our lips? Or do we have a very great fear of man and a very small fear of God? Ryan Leighton and I have started going to Tufts University and to the Davis Square area just to meet people. We sit and drink coffee and talk to people who are studying and hang out with the hopes of entering into discussions about Jesus. And we've had some beautiful conversations, but more than anything, I feel like the overwhelming reality that keeps coming back to us is that we have a tremendous fear of man. I don't want to look anti-intellectual by talking about a Jewish carpenter that was crucified and he's my only hope in this world. That's foolish. I don't want to say it. I have a huge fear of man and a very small fear of God. Do you know that Jesus summarized the whole of the Bible in this way? He said, love God, love people. Can I tell you what will happen if we really love God and we really love people? Well, if you love God, you're going to start to see very clearly that the cross of Christ, he has proclaimed that he is your all in all. He is your salvation and your hope. He is the one that loves you and cherishes you and lends your life value and purpose and direction. He's everything. He makes life worth living. I wake up every morning with breath in my lungs only for the sake of the glory of God, and you do too. Then we turn and we start loving people, people who are in desperate need, who don't have purpose and drive and direction and don't feel loved or valued or You know what will happen if we really love those people and we really love God? We're going to introduce the two every time. We've got to. Otherwise, we're either failing in our love for that person or we're failing in our love for God. This is why Paul can boldly in Romans 1.16 say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. May we be a people who can boldly assert the same. God, forgive us for being 
afraid of men and having our lips shut. Be encouraged. Be challenged. We are a people called to boldly proclaim the gospel out of fear for God. The second mark is this. Verse 7 through 12. And I love this. There's a very real shift in this passage. So we saw in the first six verses, word, proclamation, speaking. Verse 7, follow with me. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become so very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you as believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. There's a shift here from word to action, from proclamation to embodying. The second clear, beautiful mark of what makes a good pastor, how you can know your pastor is not a fake. Paul says, we embodied the gospel. We didn't just proclaim it, we embodied it. And you'll also see that every other verse, there's a reference to familial connection. Mother, brothers, father. A mother to her son. We like brothers to you. Father to his son. We proclaim the gospel because we have a fear of God. We embody the gospel because we have familial affection. We are called as a people to reach out to the world with love as if they were our very own, our very own family. And I love the way that he starts off. This is not typical imagery for Paul. He says, like a mother nursing her newborn. Now, Seven Mile Road is a fertile place. And so I week, I week in and week out get to watch moms with their, with their new babies. I love that. It's one of my favorite things about being in worship. I love the sounds of babies. By the way, if you're a parent and you ever feel uncomfortable because your child's making sound, we love that here. We love the sound of new life. Please never feel awkward or uncomfortable. We love it. And I love mothers watching you with your newborns. And I don't know if you've ever considered this. What is a mother like with her newborn? Obviously very gentle and tender. But even more so than that, that imagery calls so many things to mind. You know, a, a newborn is, doesn't have a whole lot to offer. Um, you know, they, I, I just learned this. It takes three months for a newborn even to know that their hands are their own. Did you know that? So, like, when they hit themselves in the head, they think you're doing that. Like, why are you doing that to me? Because they don't even know. They're, they're just, they've got nothing to offer. I mean, they don't. They, they, they scream, they eat, they sleep. And, and what they demand of the mother is that you reorder your whole life around me. Everything. Your sleeping pattern, when you go out, when you stay in, when I'm going to nap, when I'm going to eat, when I'm going to start screaming in the store and make you feel uncomfortable. Everything about your life is going to be reordered around me, the one who has nothing to offer. I don't even know my hands are my own. you know. But you're going to reorder your whole life around me. And Paul says, 
like that kind of love, we love you. Because at some level you go, man, is it worth it? Is it worth it? The baby doesn't even know his hands are his own. Yes, it's worth it. And you know why? The same reason that Paul says, because you have become so very dear to us with an affectionate desire for you. We have treated you with gentleness and care. The reason a mom will wake up every three hours through the night to feed her child and to hold it close, to protect it, to hold its head just right, to continue to care for it, because when she sees her own child, she is overwhelmed with affectionate desire. I care for you. I would lay down my life for you. And Paul says, that's how we were as pastors. Does that sound like a fake? Does that sound like Harold Hill? You've got nothing to offer me, but I lay my life down for you. Sounds less like Harold Hill and more like Jesus to me. And do you see that 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 is a high calling of a pastor to say, even though you may not have anything to offer to me, I will reorder my life to serve and to protect and care for you so that you might grow into adulthood. And not only that, he then, in the, the, the next thought, he says... Uh, I want to look with me at verse 8. He says, um, oh, excuse me, verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day. And he goes on to say that we worked so that we wouldn't have to take money from you, but so we could support our own preaching ministry. So not only the gentleness of motherhood, the commitment of brotherhood. I don't know how many of you have the joy of having brothers. I had two older brothers. They were just my heroes all my life. And their commitment to me was unbelievable. When I was in middle school, I was, uh, probably won't believe this, I was as big this way as I was this way, uh, which is hard in middle school. I was a round little dude. And, uh, and I got mocked pretty, pretty hard uh, in, in, the, in the locker room. There was one particular guy, Mike Lewin, and I think I've forgiven him in my heart, but I'm not sure. Um, but he would always make sure to call attention to all of my unsightly roles, just as I was changing. I'm in the corner, like, trying to quickly get dressed. And he's like, hey, guys, look at him. Look at how silly he looks with his shirt off. And I'm like, dang it. Why does he do that to me? Um, but I shared that story with my brothers. And, uh, man, the commitment of brotherhood. <laughs> that they were ready to rough this seventh grader up. My brother's seven years older than me, these big, like, hairy dudes. And they're like, tell, tell us where he is. We got him. Because at the drop of a hat, their commitment to their brother, there's just no question. Even if it means beating a seventh grade, they were willing. Um, But really, the idea is this, that the commitment of brotherhood in this passage, that he says, we so care about you, we're so committed to you, we don't want to be a burden to you. Like a brother's commitment, we will work night and day. Paul, Silas, Timothy were working in their spare time to support their preaching ministry so that they weren't asking the people that they were preaching to for money. Once again, very unlike Harold Hill. All they wanted to do, they, they would make tents by night so they could preach the gospel by day and not be a burden to the people they were with. That's the commitment of brotherhood. So not only the gentleness of motherhood, the commitment of brotherhood, but this final passage, we have the instruction of fatherhood. That they say, like a father, we encouraged, exhorted, and urged you. In verse 11 and 12. Wow. Like a father. My dad's a great baseball player, and he taught me how to play baseball. And it took some time, particularly the running the bases sort of thing, because 
coming with being a little bit more round. I wasn't too quick to encourage me and teach me how to do things. And, but the deal with this, he was so patient and so loving, but he would urge and call. It was all born out of his love. His longing for me led to his prodding of me. And that's the deal with these pastors. That He says the instruction of a pastor is born out of their love for the people. And so as a result, they call, urge, exhort. Do you see that the second mark of a pastor embodying the gospel has to do with starting to allow our hearts to reach out and love to people in such a way that we treat them like our own family. Like a mother would treat her child. Like a brother would treat his brother like a father would teach and exhort and encourage his own son. Seven Mile Road, be encouraged. You have pastors who love you. We don't get detached, historical, orthodoxy, cold, and calculated. We get the message of truth wrapped in the grace and the love of Christ. Pastors who are affectionately desirous for you, who, like a mother, want to reorder their lives around us to serve us, to protect us, so that we might grow into maturity. That is something to take courage in, to stand up straight and know that we have faithful pastors who will protect us, care for us, out of their familial affection for us. Simultaneously, be challenged, be convicted. So, what, what we established in the first half is that we're called to proclaim the gospel. It should be on our lips. We should not be silenced by fear of man. But I want to make it clear that I'm not talking about the guys in Fort Worth, Texas, outside of the movie theater that I used to run into quite often. It is not just a proclamation of the gospel for the proclamation of God's sake. When I used to go to see a movie when I was in college in Fort Worth, Texas, there was a group from the local church that would stand outside and tell me every week that I was going to hell. And I'd be like, oh... Really? Please explain that to me. And one particular time, it was because I was seeing the passion of the Christ. And they said, no, you're going to hell because did you know that the guy playing Jesus is actually Catholic? And they, I mean, they just went off on this tangent. And they thought that they were boldly proclaiming the gospel, saying, we are afraid of no man. We have a great fear of God, so we proclaim the gospel. The reality is this. The call on your life and mine is to be bold, yes but only if we allow our hearts to travel all the way through this passage. We're not just bold for boldness' sake. Allow your heart to go all the way through, verse 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Let it be couched in familial affection. Let it be the case that we, as the people of God, when we look at our neighbors, when we look at our co-workers, when we look at the people that we interact with every day, that we would look at them and long for them. Be so affectionately desirous of them for their sake and for God's that we might say, I love you like my own child, like my brother. Only then will verses 1 through 6, the preaching of the gospel, have any power or traction in that discussion. In fact, I would say this. If you're ever sharing Jesus to win an argument, to prove someone wrong, to look like you have the answers... Don't say anything. If, on the other fact, on the other hand, you are sharing the gospel of Jesus because you love the person you are with. 
Because like a mother tender with her own child, you think, I just long for you to know the truth of the love of God for you displayed at the cross of Christ. Then proclaim it with boldness. Do you see that they come together? You cannot have one without the other. If we proclaim with boldness but have not love, what are we? We're a clanging symbol. It's just going to ring in people's ears and they're going to go, my goodness. Just like those guys standing outside the movie theater, you go, I don't want to hear it. Don't want to hear it. On the other hand, if we just embody the gospel and never speak a thing, we have failed. We have failed as the church of Christ. We have failed the people in in which we are living. It is very in vogue right now to quote Augustine and say, I will preach the gospel always and use words when necessary. I've said it, and it's not true. It is impossible to proclaim the gospel by actions alone. And if you don't believe me, you can read Romans 10, because it says faith comes by hearing, and how will they know unless someone tells them? We must, we must, as the people of God, hold to both. Just as we watch our good pastors hold to both. Proclaim the gospel with fearlessness and boldness because we have a fear of God, not a fear of man. Embody the gospel with familial affection because we have had our hearts melted by the gospel ourselves. That, that is how you can know your pastor isn't a fake. When we see those two marks emerge. And that is how we as the Church of Seven Mile Road can genuinely, effectively reach out to our neighborhoods and our communities with the truth of the gospel. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you for a good, strong word from this letter of the Thessalonians. Forgive us. Forgive us. Please, God, in your mercy, forgive us. We fail on both accounts. I fail often. I'm ashamed. There are times where I'm ashamed because my fear of man is great. And there are times where I look at people as projects or obstacles rather than people that I'm called to love with familial affection. I pray that you'd forgive me, God, and that you would rebuild me by the gospel of Christ to walk in power, to do both of these well. Not for my sake, but for yours, that you may receive great glory from us as your church. We love you, love you, love you, and we pray it in Jesus' name.